Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 20 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And I'll tell you what, you know, I, with everything going on with COVID right now, I I have never, uh, full disclosure, I have never let COVID bother my social life. I would still, every now and then when my group of friends would have parties, uh, even in the summer of last year, June, July, we would still go. We have parties. I didn't care. My friends didn't care. We would go out and still live our lives if nothing was happening because that's what should be done. But there are some things that were forced to be postponed almost indefinitely because of COVID that are people are talking about bringing them back finally. And that is, of course, one of the most common ones you hear about are live shows, concerts. Jacob, uh, what about you? Do, you? do you miss concerts as much as everybody else does? Yeah, that and also live sporting events are two of the main things that I've missed the most about the pre-COVID years. Oh, yeah. I was never – I mean, of course, I would go to baseball games uh, with my family when I was younger, but I didn't care too much for sporting events as I got older. I actually did not go to too many concerts in my youth. I actually did more – I went to quite a few stand-up comedians in person in my time. I remember uh, twice on two separate occasions, one in my hometown and one in a neighboring town, my dad and I went to go see uh, Jeff Dunham, the ventriloquist, perform live, and those were those were some great times. That's That, that dates me more than any other reference I've ever made on the show, I think. And we also did get to see – my dad and I did get to see Jerry Seinfeld live once, and that was that was a lot of fun. I did actually get to see one concert two years ago in 2019. It was the 40th anniversary, of course, of Pink Floyd's The Wall, my absolute favorite album of all time. And it was a cover band, a tribute band that performed, and they did a pretty good job. I went with a friend, and that was a fun experience. But nothing says, let's get back to having concerts 2021 people like this. On May 8th, just a few days ago, there was a concert organized for, I guess you could say charitable reasons, although not quite like any charity you've ever heard before. This isn't like Live Aid or Live Aid. This isn't like the uh, Hurricane Sandy Relief concert in 2012. No, this is an awareness concert. It was called Vax Live. Vax Live. Yes, as in that kind of Vax. And uh, there's so much to talk about here. If you go to this website, we'll be posting the link in the description. First off, this concert, this awareness concert, was organized by a group, uh, a website called globalcitizen.org. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. You might as well have just called yourselves Evil Villain Enterprises at that point. Like, could your name not be more obvious? Well, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Like, used to, it was kind of subtle, the fact that they really wanted to do away with national borders and just all be one global human family. Now they're just basically coming right out in the open and calling themselves global citizens as opposed to the citizens of their country. Exactly. It's like you said a while ago about uh, people who talk about white replacement, the left. When the left talks about it, they talk out of both sides of their mouth the same way Holocaust deniers do. They say, oh, no, globalism's a conspiracy theory. That'll never happen. But it'd be really great if globalism was happening. So, But it's quite impressive to me in a hilarious way that the best these globalists could do with this concert, did they get like really hot stars who are top of the charts right now? No, no, no. They got... A whole bunch of has-been celebrities to do this concert. The host of the concert, I wasn't aware concerts had hosts. I know award shows do, but I wasn't aware concerts had hosts, but okay, was uh, Selena Gomez. You uh, you remember her, Jacob? Selena Gomez? She was um, she was big back in um, back in like, 2010, 2011? Yeah, the early 2010s, like, when I was in high school, even a little bit uh, into my earlier years in college. She, she kind of fell off the popularity chart after she stopped dating Justin Bieber. <laughs> uh, some of the performances at this concert included, the, the biggest one was Jennifer Lopez. Mm, okay, fair enough. She did a Super Bowl halftime performance not too long ago. Um, Eddie Vedder. Uh, 
You know who that is, Jacob, right? Eddie I have Vedder? never heard the name in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually only had heard of him once before. He did perform at the aforementioned uh, Hurricane Sandy Relief concert. Uh, the Foo Fighters. Yeah, the Foo Fighters performed. With a name like that, nothing says countercultural, fighting the power, like we're going to perform at a concert where the message is to do exactly what your government tells you to and get this vaccine that has not been fully tested yet. <laughs> it doesn't seem to me like they're, they're fighting foos anymore. No, they have become the foos themselves, unfortunately. Celebrity cameo appearances, uh, not performances, thankfully, but cameo appearances by the likes of Ben Affleck, Sean Penn, David Letterman, who still refuses to cut that beard of his. It, it doesn't even look like good in the, like long in the good sense. It just looks literally like a homeless man's beard. Uh, Chrissy Teigen, Okay. And uh, video messages from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. You know, don't you just love that? <laughs> that th- Those celebrities, yes. The, the, the One of the most toxic actresses to have ever been produced by America basically infiltrated the royal family and stole the prince from the royal family and brought him back to America. We basically Americanized Harry now. He, he is more of an American celebrity at this point, performing at absolutely hysterical C-list, D-list, has-been concerts like this. And a video message from, of course, Joe and Jill Biden, whom they make sure to bill. In the case of Jill, they billed her as Dr. Jill Biden. You, you notice, of course, that Joe and certainly his cheerleaders in the media have really been, ever since, even before the election, really, they've been playing the Ben Shapiro card of reminding everyone that his wife is a doctor. <laughs> Just constantly, <laughs> constantly, Dr. Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden. And it's, it's obvious why they're doing it. They want to make it sound like, oh, we have a medical expert as a first lady, even though a quick search, even on Wikipedia, will tell you it's a doctorate in education. So literally like a professor. Like she, she is not a medical doctor in any sense of the word, but I digress that this is I find it funny that, you know, this being a big globalist effort, including Joe Biden and Harry and Meghan, the best they could do, because clearly these kinds of things are usually pitched towards like Zoomers, like the, the youngest kids right now, the, the young hip generation. They couldn't even get the celebrities that Zoomers really care about right now, like. I don't know. They couldn't get Billy Elish. They couldn't get Ariana Grande. They they had to settle for Selena Gomez and Eddie Vedder and the Foo Fighters. Like, what well, is Britney Spears going to make an appearance next? Like, I mean, <laughs> most Zoomers probably don't even know who David Letterman is. Exactly. Or Sean Penn. Has Sean Penn even been in any movies lately? I don't think so. Oh, but wait, there's more. There's even more. When you go to their website, they list some of their corporate sponsors, including Coca-Cola, Citigroup. Delta Airlines and Verizon, all the usual suspects. When they're not boycotting Georgia, you know, for trying to crack down on voter fraud, they're sponsoring these cringe has-been concerts. But you go to the website, and there's other stuff on the website beyond just this concert. Two things I really just had to point out just scrolling through the website. There's uh, a list, a section called Featured Actions, where one of the things you can do is you can go to the website and submit your story. Quote, tell us what you've missed over the last year and why. Hello, excuse me? What we've missed over the year and and why we've missed it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we've missed so much over this year because you idiots insisted on locking down the whole world for a whole year just so you could get rid of Trump in the 2020 election. That's why we're missing it. These retards have no sense of self-awareness. It's astounding to me. They dare to ask. It's like if a convicted murderer writes to the family of one of his victims and says, you know, tell me why you miss your your loved one that I killed 20 years ago. (laughs) I I just had to also get to another one of these that shows, again, the lack of self-awareness. One of the FAQs that towards the bottom of the page reads, quote, how are you working with the L.A. County and state of California officials? End quote. 
That's not a joke. This website, globalcitizen.org, raising awareness for global vaccine equity. That's That was Harry's message. That cares about the world. The world. We're global citizens. Oh, but here's this, an entire question dedicated to how we're handling California and Los Angeles. Well, that's that's the center of the world for them. That's basically – that is their Rome. That is their Mecca. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where all these celebrities live. These All, all these has-been celebrities when they're not in movies anymore like Sean Penn. They live, of course, yeah, they live in L.A. and they, they live in California. But it's just like what you and I have talked about uh, several times before with uh, Fox News. Fox News kind of had this problem even before all the Cuomo scandals really started. They would nonstop cover Cuomo's coronavirus press conferences. They would cover New York's coronavirus policies on a daily basis because obviously Fox News is based in New York. So – from that perspective, we get it. But all that does is it leaves viewers in the other 49 states wondering, what about us? We don't care about New York. Talk about things that we actually care about. It's the same thing here. But again, the self-awareness or lack thereof is just hysterical to me. I just I saw this first advertised. I saw it promoted on YouTube with the, the commercials, the ads on the videos. And I couldn't believe this was actually a thing. I'm like, we have gone from concerts to raise funds, donations for fighting diseases like like AIDS. This isn't even about fighting coronavirus. This is just encouraging people to get the vaccine. This isn't about raising fundraising for a hurricane that devastated an entire portion of the United States. This is, hey, just don't forget to go get vaccinated. Do what your government says and go get a shot. It, it's just it blows my mind how far how far the standards have fallen of American celebrities. Again, you look through this list of celebrities and realize, wow, America has really you know, even our pop culture as problematic as it has been as much as it, as it has contributed to the downfall of american society even within their own standards of what makes a good celebrity we have fallen so far from the standards of decades past well i would argue that the getting the vaccine isn't even that's kind of a sideshow in and of itself they're they're what they're really pushing for is the the, the elimination of of hatred of suffering of everything that makes us human because before – whenever the pandemic got going, one of the major things that the people were just coming out and like celebrities and elites were coming out and openly saying is that they hoped that the pandemic would move us into a better place as as global citizens, as human beings, as a world, that they hoped that we would come out of the pandemic change, that our society would be different. And I know we did uh, something we pointed out there with the whole – their emphasis on California and L.A. We, they, were, they were very much focusing on – the geographical area that matters most to them, even when the scope of what they're talking about goes far beyond just that. I know we did just say that, but for our next topic, we are actually going to be doing just that, only because it does tie back into a broader discussion about the Republican Party and its current status and where it is going from here. So, Jacob, what's the latest that's going on with Virginia gubernatorial politics? The Virginia Republican Party has chosen its nominee for the November election. It's uh, Glenn Youngkin. He is uh, he is the former CEO of the Carlisle Group, and uh, for those of you that don't know, the Carlisle Group is the world's second largest private equity firm. It's based in Washington D.C. The way the Republican Party chose him is they had a convention in which there were roughly thirty to forty thousand people who participated. They had to pre-register as a delegate if they wanted to vote. It's a little bit different from the way most states uh, do their primaries. It's a much more exclusive system than you know, like a primary would be, right? Which which I strongly support. A lot of people are critical of, but I think that's the best way that the, to do. That's the best way that parties should choose their nominees because it ensures that only the people who are engaged politically are actually going to participate. It's kind of like with the Iowa caucus. You don't the Iowa caucus makes sure that only the people who really care about the future of the country and their state are actually going to show up and vote because it's an all-day thing. I'm actually going to disagree very strongly with that. Being from California, where they have similar – they have primaries, but they also do convene the convention every couple of years to vote on various measures and with the use of delegates. All that really lends itself to is the party leadership 
installing their own people as delegates and using those and basically staffing it up, kind of like, you know, what Biden is doing with his administration or what any administration usually does. And they staff it with their own people and just completely fill it with loyalists who will do whatever they say. So all that really happens is the voters, the the more the grassroots base are left out as party insiders and, you know, um, chiefs of staff or whatever become delegates and they're able to vote you know, against the interests of the voters in favor of the interests of the leadership. At least that can happen sometimes. That's a little bit – I think that, that sounds a little bit different from the Iowa caucus, from the way that that operates because – Well, oh, yeah, but caucus versus like a convention. I mean like a caucus, which is where people still like vote and go out and vote, I think. They go to like polling places, whereas a convention is a small group of people usually gathered in like one place. But with this with this situation, you had up to – I think it was like thirty to 40,000 people. So there aren't enough Republican workers within the Republican Party to be staffed to fill those delegate positions. I mean they have – they definitely have more influence, but it just shows that there's a lot more interest this, this year around than last time because last time there were only about 12,000. So I can see in a situation, let's say if you only had a few thousand who were delegates and then, yeah, the Republican Party could definitely run up the numbers with people who were loyal to their insiders and to the established candidate. But whenever you've got a system in where you've got 30 to 40,000 voters, it's a little bit harder to do that, which – you know, I, I understand what you're saying about how it's how you don't want the party elites to be able to control things, but I do like the idea of limiting the vote, at least in the primaries, to where only the most engaged voters get to choose who the nominee is, rather than have a situation where you have 1.5 million people show up to vote, and most of those people don't know anything about politics. They're just going to vote for whoever whoever they saw, you know, the, the ads that they saw on Flashiest TV. Flashiest ads or who offers them money or things right. like that. Right, and so the, the most well, the well-funded, most well-funded candidate ends up winning. Now, in this case, it was the most well-funded candidate who ended up winning. Yeah. Youngkin is uh, – he, he is a millionaire. He uh, loaned himself $5.5 million for this, uh, for this primary. Oh, my goodness. Which is an incredible amount of money when you consider that this was a convention. This, this wasn't was a, a primary, primary campaign. People people usually spend that much on general elections, like, right, right? Let alone on a primary. It's, but it's not even a real primary. Like if it was, even if it was a real primary, that would be high. But this is a ridiculous amount of money for just uh, for a convention type primary. But uh, Youngkin is uh, he's a little bit of, a, of an outsider in the sense that he's never held political office before. He is a DC insider, though. I mean, you can't. Yeah, if you're the CEO of the Carlisle Group, you are definitely connected to people in the inside the Beltway. It's like if Manafort were to run for office, right? Like he, you exactly. can say he obviously has never held office before, but he's definitely been involved for a while. So, just as an example, the Car- so the Carlisle Group was founded in 1987 in DC by William Conway, Daniel Dan- Daniello, and David Rubenstein. Uh, Conway's son is the was a Democratic candidate who lost to the Soros-backed Cook County attorney Kim Fox, who everyone knows about because of the Justice Smollett case. Uh, he ran against Kim Cox in the 2020 Democratic primary. Uh, Daniello is on the board of trustees of the American Enterprise Institute, the, the uh, fairly neoconservative think tank in Very. Washington, D.C. It's like the neoconservative yeah, think tank I, of Washington, Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess there, I mean, there really isn't another conservative think tank that is more neocon than AEI. Um, Very pro-Bush, all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, pro-intervention. David Rubenstein is the chairman of the Kennedy Center. He is also the former chairman of the Smithsonian Institution and the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and president of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. What a motley crew of <laughs> blue-collar workers who are just like you and me, right, Exactly, Jacob? yeah. So Youngkin is really going He's going to really be able to speak to the rednecks of Virginia and get out that redneck vote with his background. And when you look at the primary field he went up against, there were two – his top two opponents in particular were – are both office holders. Um, Amanda Chase, who was a sta- is a state senator for Virginia's 11th state senate district, 
and Kirk Cox, who's a pretty big name, even I'm fairly familiar with that name at this point in Virginia Republican politics, who was Speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates from 2018 to 2020, and he is currently a state delegate in the 66th district of the Virginia House of Delegates. And you look at the various endorsements they received, it's kind of interesting to see the spread here. From what I understand, and certainly in the polling, Amanda Chase was the most popular among voters and was seen as like the MAGA candidate. She was endorsed by General Mike Flynn, among others. Kurt Cox was the establishment pick. He was endorsed by two of the most recent Republican governors of Virginia, George Allen and Bob McDonnell, and a few members of the House of Representatives and elected officials. And then Youngkin was endorsed, but his most prominent endorsement was Ted Cruz, but was also endorsed by Corey Stewart. I was a little surprised to see that because I, I'm familiar with Corey Stewart. He is a pretty solid MAGA guy who was the nominee for U.S. Senate in Virginia in 2018. And he also ran for governor in 2017 and narrowly lost that primary to uh, Ed Gillespie. So he endorsed Glenn Youngkin, which initially made me think, okay, this Youngkin guy, if he's got Corey Stewart's endorsement, he seems like a nice guy. But then we did a little bit more digging and found out some not so great things about Mr. Youngkin's past. So Youngkin was as president of the Carlisle Group back after George Floyd was killed. He released this statement. This was from May May 31st, 2020. This week, Carlisle co-CEOs Kusong Lee and Glenn Youngkin shared the following message with our people around the world. Dear global colleagues. Wait, glo- global colleagues. This guy should have been performing at Vax Live. <laughs> well, Again? it is a private equity firm. But- Great start already for Mr. Youngkin. First, like... Two words in the statement, and we already have a problem. And they wrote, we remain grateful for all that you are doing to navigate through these extraordinary times. Supporting our colleagues and our families over the last several months has brought challenges for all of us, and we are proud of how we have responded as a community, obviously talking about the coronavirus. Today, we are compelled to write you in light of the racism and injustices we have witnessed recently. At Carlisle, there is no place for racism or discrimination of any kind. Since the beginning of the pandemic, anti-Asian incidents have increased significantly in communities worldwide. And we are all witnessing in real time over the past few days, grief and rage have erupted more visibly in the form of civil unrest throughout the United States in reaction to a number of incidents directed against African Americans, including the senseless death of George Floyd and a number of other recent incidents that are unacceptable and horrific. What other recent incidents are they talking about? I mean, the Ahmoud, Ahmad, Armald, whatever his name was in Georgia. Aubrey, the, 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 the guy who was like, you know, robbing someone's house and then got shot or something like that. Well, he was suspected. I mean, it was one of the situations where he was a suspected robbery and there were people that were trying to make a citizen's arrest and uh, they tried to grab the gun and they killed him. Not sure exactly how that has anything to do with racism, though. I mean, he could have been a white guy they were suspected of. Anyway, so moving on. Making matters worse are the dangerous forces of violence, destruction, and hatred that have no place in our society. We are all, we are all feeling sad, frustrated, angry, helpless, scared, and confused. Could they add any more adjectives? And we are all trying to understand why. And we are all empathizing with those individuals and families directly impacted, but also with our colleagues globally who have to go through their day-to-day lives in our world where these events are a reality. What we see manifesting around us is very... Very real. This is not who we are and who we want you and we want you to know that we stand with all of you in such a difficult time. Carlisle has grown and prospered by deliberately building a fabric of partnership with diversity of experiences and perspectives. And he goes on. We are a global multicultural institution. All right. So moving on, he says, in keeping with our deep commitment to our our core values, we will continue to invest in even more resources toward diversity and inclusion. As part of our efforts, the firm and individuals at Carlisle have already donated over $10 million toward causes in light of the pandemic. Today, we are announcing a special match to support organizations that are that are working on social justice and reform of the U.S. criminal justice system, kind of like Kim Fox wants to do in Chicago. 
Now, the three organizations they list that they're going to make a matching $1,000 contribution to Here we go. are Equal Justice Initiative, the Soros-funded Equal Justice Initiative. Sounds proper. Southern Poverty Law Center. Okay. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Why not just throw in a donation of official BLM group while you're at it? I mean, give Patrice Cullors another, a fifth vacation home. I mean, those three organizations essentially are were BLM before BLM was a thing. But the thing is, this is signed by Q and Glenn. So his partner, Q Song Lee and Glenn Youngkin. So Glenn's signature, his name is on this message, on this press release that was sent out. A Republican who donates to the SPLC. Yeah, the SPLC that labels pro-family groups who simply want to uh, protect the traditional American family and promote family values, who are just regular Christians who hold the basic tenets of Christianity as bigots and hate mongers. This is an organization who treats them as hate groups. And literally gets people to be inspired to go try to shoot up their offices in D.C. Exactly, yeah. So this is who Glenn Youngkin, this is what Glenn Youngkin signed on to. Now, what's interesting is when CNS News, which is tied to the Media Research Center out of Reston, Virginia, brought this out in a a January article, Youngkin's campaign spokeswoman, Macaulay Parker, told them, quote, this is a false and deceptive smear from political opponents who are scared of Glenn, a conservative outsider and leader from the private sector who can win. Well, how is it false and deceptive? His name is literally on the press release that was released from the equity from the private equity firm that he was the CEO of. How exactly was this a deceptive smear? I mean, they and it's the thing is, I'm I was reading straight off the Carlisle Group's website. It's still up. It's not like they took it down. Oh, that's even worse. But she goes on. She says Glenn has never donated to the SPLC and does not agree with them. He is a Christian and a conservative who is pro life and served in his church for years. Okay, well, there there were lots of Christians and so-called conservatives, people who were pro-life, who got deceived into supporting Black Lives Matter. That doesn't have anything to do with this. But it do- also doesn't matter if he personally never donated to the SPLC. His name is on a press release encouraging people to donate to the SPLC, promising that the company that he is the CEO of is going to match their donation, which is worse than personally. Do- I would rather he himself write a check of $1,000 to the SPLC. It's worse than asking people to donate. Like you could just say, hey, you should donate. But saying you should donate so I will match it so they get twice as much yeah, money. Right, right. But also he's advocating you're going to get a lot of people who are really ignorant of who the SPLC is, of what the Equal Justice Initiative is or what the NAACP Legal Defense Fund supports. You're going to have a lot of people who are really ignorant, who look at – who read the news, listen to the news. They're like, oh, wow, black people are being hunted down and killed. I better open up my checkbook and write a check to you know to help out. They're going to match the donation. You're going to get a lot of ignorant people like that who are going to donate. So saying that he's not, he doesn't support SPLC and hasn't personally donated, that doesn't really – say much it's even worse because yeah even if you think that black people are being hunted down in the streets by white people or by cops which is not what's happening even if you wanted to fight that SPLC doesn't do anything to fight that literally all they do is just dox people and declare organizations and people to be hate groups they don't do anything they don't do any proactive like work or like police reform nothing all they do is just yell at other people and insult other people that's all they do so the federalist picked up on the on the story after CNS news broke it and uh, this is by Emily Jashinsky. She said they, – they, so they, they basically ran the story again, and then they reached out to the Youngkin campaign. And Macaulay Porter wrote back and said, Glenn has never given a dime to the SPLC and is totally opposed to their agenda. Other people at Carlisle supported it, but Glenn never did. Um, so and that's she, a blatant lie, right? But then she goes in. He's a Christian, a conservative who has served in this oh, church for oh years my. and donated millions of dollars to Christian charities and organizations. But 
How many churches support Black Lives Matter, first off? So that's not even a legitimate excuse. But second off, <laughs> right. that's beside the point. That's completely beside the point. It doesn't have point. anything to do with that. So I think the argument they're making is okay, the SPLC smears Christian organizations. So he has proven his bona fides as a Christian philanthropist by giving millions to Christian organizations. But that doesn't – That's like you said, that's completely beside the point of what we're talking about. The fact that he lent his support – to donate to SPLC. It doesn't matter if he personally supported it. It doesn't matter if he personally opposes the SPLC. Why did he give in to putting his name on a press release advocating people donate to it? And he never addressed that. At no point during the campaign have I been able to find where he addressed that. Now, he did make a video where he said that he has never – he personally said, I've never given to the SPLC. I don't support their – what they stand for. I completely you – know, I don't – so he's saying you know, I don't support them at all. So what I'm led to believe is that the Carlisle Group, like every other corporation – and this is what Jashinsky points out in this article, the, the problem that a lot of conservatives are facing who are in high positions in corporate America. The Carlisle Group apparently wanted to make a statement. About this, because all of the activists were running. Of course, the activists and journalists—they're kind of—they are kind of uh, a distinction without a difference. They were pushing the George Floyd thing. They were making sure that the video went viral. They were constantly writing article after article about it. They, of course, all the big tech companies—they were making sure that everyone who had a social media account knew about the death of George Floyd. So you had all these corporations that were feeling the pressure from these activists to say something to to come out against racism. So the Carlisle Group. Apparently, they decided that these three organizations was what they were going to donate to and urge their support or their uh, their partners to donate to and match the donation. And because Glenn Youngkin apparently didn't have a tight enough spine, he wasn't able to stand up to him. So he just gave in. He did what most every other conservative in every major corporation did. He just gave in because I remember at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, as every single as like two thirds of all the major corporations were coming out and supporting it. Just stand up for the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, sh- showing the, uh, you know, just basically giving ridiculous statements. Well, you know, we feel so sorry about the racism that black people in America face, just assuming that what the activists claim black people feel is what all black people feel. When they were saying all this, I was thinking to myself, so am I to, am I to believe that all of the businessmen in America, like 80, 90 percent of the businessmen in America, all of the people who work at these companies, they all support BLM? Like all of these CEOs, they're all on board with defunding the police. They're all on board no, with the narrative that black that white people are racist they're, and they're systemic just going, racism. They're just going along with the cultural trend. They're going along with the cultural trend, and in, uh, just like in Youngkin's case, apparently, it's because so, – I, you know, I believe, Youngkin, that he doesn't support the SPLC, but like most conservative businessmen, he doesn't have a spine. He's He's weak, and the thing is there's no reason for him to be weak like this. He's worth like – $260 million. When you're that rich, you have a voice. You can say, no, I'm not going to stand for this. And if you want to oust me as CEO of the Carlisle Group, go right ahead. I will become your worst enemy if you do that. But no, he doesn't do that. He just goes along with it. He just lends his name to this and supports the SPLC. And the thing is, all three of these organizations, the Equal Justice Initiative, the SPLC, the NAACP, these groups hate the very voters that Youngkin needs to win the Virginia gubernatorial race. They hate them with a passion. And he donated money to them and lied about it. Like you can't – you as you said, that page is still up on their website. That letter is still out there. They haven't taken it down. His name, his signature is on it. So he's just blatantly lying and hoping people well, won't look up an article on the Federalist Well, about his it. argument is that he hasn't personally out of his own wallet given to the SPLC. Which is beside the point because if you're giving money from your company, your company that – 
money you earned as CEO of this company, it's it's no difference than, okay, you gave it out of a business account than out of your personal account. It's the same difference. It's still money associated with you. So Jashinsky, so, so Jashinsky writes, uh, the rise of woke capital along with the GOP's increasingly working class base means business backgrounds will come with cultural baggage in the future. Let's revisit Porter's statement to the Federalist. Quote, Glenn has never given a dime to the SPLC and is totally opposed to their agenda. Other people at Carlisle supported it, but Glenn never did. And then she goes on to point out that Youngkin's name is still in the message to Carlisle employees. And she she makes a very good uh, point that the pressure that executives face to use their corporate resources to empower the left's growing cultural power and hateful conduct is formidable. It puts business leaders who hope to put their private sector experience to work as lawmakers in a difficult position, underscoring the shifting coalitions to which Republicans and Democrats are responsive. And this is this is key. The base of the Republican Party has virtually no cultural power. They have very little corporate power, if any at all. So you're trying to get a bunch of construction workers, a bunch of auto workers, a bunch of farmers to vote for you. But yet everything that you support in your private life goes against – in your private business goes against the values that they hold. So – and Jashinsky is pointing out that whenever you've got shifting coalitions, when all the blue-collar workers are gravitating to the, Repu- to the Republican Party and a lot of the white-collar workers are, are gravitating to the Democratic Party, it's going to be increasingly difficult – for business Republicans to win elections, because if you're going to survive in the business world, you've got to bow and bend the knee to their woke, socially progressive agenda. But if you want to try to win votes and if you want to try to win elections, then you've got to you can't have that baggage because then blue, these blue collar, socially conservative American nationalists, they're going to look at you and say, wait a minute. You supported the SPLC when you were in the in working as your in your CEO position. So let's look at some of the things that Yunkin um, that Yunkin has is bringing to the table that might motivate Republican voters. Uh, Yunkin said last month that it was quote a sad thing that Medicaid was expanded in Virginia under the Affordable Care Act, one of the signature achievements of the current Democratic governor Ralph Northam. This is from a New York Times article, he, but he acknowledged that the clock couldn't be turned back. So, how many Republican voters think that it was a bad thing that Medicaid was expanded? This is the thing when you. Th- this is why the Republican Party, as it is today, is not the Republican Party that existed when the Affordable Care Act was passed. There's a lot of Republicans in Virginia who desperately needed for Medicaid to be extended. You can't come at it from a fiscally conservative position and argue that it was a sad thing that Medicaid was expanded when a huge percentage of your voters needed that Medicaid to be expanded. You can criticize Obamacare all you want, but but criticizing pre-existing systems like Medicaid and Medicare, which have always been popular, is not the way to do it. Right, and it's not even – and even with Obamacare, this is the thing – you know, support for Obamacare actually went up after a couple of years because – the thing is a lot of – because we have a, a, such a bad health care system that Republicans never really tried to address, they just kept wanting to run against Obamacare. A lot of conservatives just kind of took the position as, well, you know, Obamacare is here to stay. I'm just going to – I might as well use it since I can't afford health care. And this is the situation that a lot of poor Virginia residents are in. But and let's, let's jump to the other side. Let's jump to the fiscally conservative side. If you oppose the expansion of Medicare, Medicaid – so this is what Republicans do. They lose an election. The Democrats get in and they implement their agenda. Then Republicans run against that agenda and then they get into office and they don't do anything to overturn that agenda. Exactly. Just like like the first two years of the Trump presidency. Right. But see, when Joe Biden got elected, what was the first thing he did? He immediately put pen to paper and started signing executive order after executive order, undoing just as much of the Trump legacy that he possibly could in his first week in office without having to go to Congress. Republicans, they get elected and they point to something like the expansion of Medicaid and they're like, yeah, that was an unfortunate, unfortunate thing. It was a sad thing. 
but they're like, well, it's too late. It's already expanded. We can't turn the clock back. This, this is their attitude about it. Literally, literally everything just about. They get elected. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it sure is sad they took prayer out of schools, but you can't turn the clock back. It sure is sad that, I don't know, we had uh, Roe v. Wade, but, oh, well, you can't turn the clock back. But let's go on to some things that he actually does, uh, to his credit, does claim that he wants to turn the clock back on. He did, he did say that he wants to restore a state voter identification law, which Northam overturned. And he wants to this is this to me, this is the deal breaker when it comes to Yunkin. He wants to replace the entire State Board of Education and he wants to institute the seventeen seventy six project, um, which is the patriotic curriculum for patriotic education that Trump wanted to implement nationwide. As a response to the sixteen nineteen project. Right, right. So Yunkin wants to implement the seventeen seventy six project at the state level in Virginia. That's so, pretty awesome. So the fact that he's promising to implement the 1776 project statewide and most importantly, completely remove the entire state board of education, which for those of you that don't know, Virginia's state board of education is trying their best to make Virginia more woke than California. Like they've even gone so far as to say that they want to change math. That's right. Because math is math discriminates against. They wanted to eliminate like all upper like algebra two geometry trigonometry. They want to eliminate that completely from high school because apparently that discriminates against black and brown students who aren't able to compete with uh, with, with white students. And and also at, at the at the local level, the local like the Fairfax County Board of Education has just gone absolutely absolutely crazy on this stuff. Um, so this is removing that state board of education, implement the 1776 project, it, it are are two excellent reasons why. Despite his Carlisle association, if he holds, you know, continues to hold this position, I could I, I could probably vote for him. Um, every everything else is basically just down the line. You know, fiscal conservative Republican, kind of what you would expect from uh, from a typical big business DC insider. But that's just one of the things that that the Republican Party is going to have a problem with. If you're going to have a rural blue collar base, or not even a rural base, but a blue collar base, and you're trying to get rich people, because this was the big argument that Youngkin is wealthy, he can afford to fund his campaign. Terry McAuliffe won't be able to outspend him, so we need to vote for him. But if you're going to bring in wealthy business people into political into the races. They're going to come with if they if they don't have a spine when they were in their business life. They're going to come with a lot of baggage. It's going to turn a lot of conservatives off. Speaking of going even more woke than California, which theoretically shouldn't be possible, but unfortunately it is in some cases. The CIA, as if we didn't need one more reason to hate the CIA, which is one of the the most deep state of deep state agencies. That is now making the kind of staffing decisions that honestly, if anything else, I think John Cardio said this on Twitter. Republicans, including Donald Trump, should take notice of how Biden and his regime are really staffing up the whole federal government with his loyalists and true believers to push stuff like this. The CIA has a YouTube channel, Central Intelligence Agency Verified, that has published a series of videos all sharing the same title, Humans of CIA. And these are recruitment videos. And it actually kind of borrows from the trend that was started in like the, maybe the mid-2010s uh, where various Facebook pages and social media pages dedicated to certain locations called humans, like humans of New York, humans of Los Angeles. And it, all they would basically do is just show like a really solemn picture of some citizen who would give their life story of struggling with PTSD because I'm lactose intolerant or stuff like that. And just ways – basically trying to make them sound like – their life is a struggle here in the United States, and I deserve to be recognized and celebrated on social media because I'm still alive. You know, it's just, it's all, it's just, it very much is 
diversity participation culture in action. And I even saw this in my college. There was a Facebook page, Humans of UCSB, that did similar things. And these ads, one of these two ads has gone viral. We're going to play the whole ad for you guys because this is just too hysterical. This is the very first installment in this Humans of CIA video series. When I was 17, I quoted Zora Neale Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me in my college application essay. The line that spoke to me stated simply, I am not tragically colored. There is no sorrow damned up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. At 17, I had no idea what life would bring, but Sora's sentiment articulated so beautifully how I felt as a daughter of immigrants then and now. Nothing about me was or is tragic. I am perfectly made. I can wax eloquent on complex legal issues in English while also belting Guayaquil de mis amores in Spanish. I can change a diaper with one hand and console a crying toddler with the other. Sounds like she should have joined ICE then. <laughs> I'm struggling to even to, to sit through this because it's a video. It's visual. I mean, you you got to see some of these visuals to to really get the full image here. And we'll, we'll go at it. We'll post this link in the description below, but it gets even worse, my friends. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. No, no, no. <laughs> you're not supposed to say you're cisgender. That's a bad thing. Being cisgender means you're part of the privilege class. Don't you get it? Unless you defy science and biology and identify as something else other than the gender, the sex with which you were born, you're, you're privileged. She should have they, – they need to coach her better, damn it. They need to let, let her know you don't include cisgender. That's like saying that I'm white. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. You literally just checked so many boxes. What are you talking about, woman? Oh, and, uh, and on the video, if you if you watch the video, the very first award that it shows that she's won is a diversity award. Diversity. Oh, yeah, totally. She, but she got in on her merits, Jacob. She clearly got in on her merits. That's the message of this video. I am a walking declaration, a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has been asked. I did not sneak into CIA. My employer. And also, and in that part right there, as she says, I did not sneak in CIA, it shows a photograph of her with none other than John Brennan. Enough said. It was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in and I earned my way up the ranks of this organization. I am educated, qualified, and competent. And sometimes I struggle. I struggle feeling like I could do more, be more to my two sons. And I struggle leaving the office when I feel there's so much more to do. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. Ah, oh, shoot me. What, what even is this imposter syndrome? This is the thing that's been going around on social media. Jacob, you have any idea what this imposter syndrome thing is that the left is talking about? Yes, actually. Imposter syndrome. That's when you feel like you are an imposter in someone else's space. So if I'm a colored person and I step into a white space, then I automatically have imposter syndrome because I feel like I'm an imposter in that space that I don't belong in. So we can easily justify everything the, the colonialists did when they settled the Western Hemisphere by saying, no, no, no it's OK, guys. They, they were all – they all suffer from imposter syndrome. Yeah, so, that, exactly. So Christopher Columbus did nothing wrong. Right, right, exactly. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. 
intoxicate me? My brilliance! <laughs> intoxicate people. Please what? intoxicate me with your brilliance. Her head is not big enough for her ego. This is... <laughs> oh, my... Ugh. I've never quite heard of uh, being intoxicated with someone else's brilliance. Uh, I'm, I'm going to need to get intoxicated after watching this video. <laughs> and it's not done yet, guys. Full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. Uh, you got it wrong again, lady. You're supposed to say Latin X. All right, don't you know that that's, that's the woke that's term a, now? I know. Latina is sexist. Yeah, it's, it's sexist. It's gender language. What are you doing? I, oh, but wait, no, it's okay because she identified as cisgender, remember? So she, she can call herself Latina because that's okay. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you, whoever you are. Know your worth. Command your space. Mija, you're worth it. And she's wearing a shirt that says that with the feminist, the, the symbol for the female gender with a fist in it. Mija, you are worth it. So, uh, you know, you know what we need after watching that, Jacob? We need a second one because we're, we're masochists here today at The Right Take just for today. We're going to watch another one of these videos. Again, same title, Humans of CIA. I wanted to be a librarian the first time I set foot in a library. I was always a little different, even at that age, and libraries offered a safe, quiet space where I could find tens of thousands of escapes into worlds of fantasy, mystery, and intrigue. After finishing college, I entered the workforce as a middle school librarian, where I was able to bring that dream full circle and match my students with the perfect books. Now, I get to experience that same type of fulfillment in a very different way here at CIA. Not only am I involved in the acquisitions of journals, books, and countless electronic resources, I'm also encouraged to curate special collections that challenge expectation. Recently, I brought in our intelligence gaming collection to give officers unique opportunities to practice skills they need in their various roles. Instead of sitting for hours in front of a computer-based training, they can play a carefully selected game to train a specific set of skills while simultaneously building on the myriad soft skills essential to intelligence work. And it literally shows him with it shows shelves of these board games and then him playing with one. I wasn't aware that our CIA is now a daycare center, for God's sake. Like this, this, these people are in charge of our national security now. <laughs> oh my goodness. So so we're now hiring middle school teachers <laughs> to be CIA librarians and play board games. Like, like what's like you might as well just hire actual gamers at this point. Hire dudes who play Call of Duty in their basement, because they're probably more qualified to be in the CIA at this point than this guy. My favorite thing about CIA is that they encourage the out-of-the-box ideas that drive real progress. Growing up gay in a small southern town, I was lucky to have a wonderful and accepting family. I always struggled with the idea that I might not be able to discuss my personal life at work. Imagine my surprise when I was taking my oath at CIA and I noticed a rainbow on then-director Brennan's lanyard. Once again, John Brennan showing his ugly face, rhetorically speaking, in this video. And it shows him in this video wearing the lanyard with the rainbow on it. And the stupid key necklace. He has a necklace with a key on it for some reason. As well as a nose ring and a very large ring on one of his fingers. Like a giant blue, like obviously fake, but jewel in it. And I'm just like, these people are in the deep state. These people are the deep state now. Well, this is funny to laugh at, sure, but... This should scare the hell out of everybody. Well, it should scare the hell out of everybody because notice something very interesting that he said there in that video. He said, growing up gay in a small southern town, and he talks about 
how he was accepted once he joined the CIA family. And it shows footage of like a, a water tower and like an old like Main Street looking place, like rural America. The implication being that growing up gay in a small southern town is a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. It the implication is that southern towns are bad things. Right. It doesn't make you feel safe. You have to go to a library and seek solace in a library to find your safe space among a bunch of books because the people outside are so scary and hateful that you can't dare show your face outside. Now think about it. This is something you might find in a very niche university course that would focus on, I guess, probably a sociology course. It's a very left-wing at a very left-wing university. They might have someone give a show a video with someone giving a testimony of what it was like growing up gay in a small southern town with a bunch of religious bigots who hated you because you were gay, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference is that little niche university class, it's not necessarily funded directly by taxpayers. Like the students are uh, – sure, the university itself is subsidized by tax dollars, but the students are paying tuition to attend that class, and it's optional. They don't have to attend that class. The CIA is funded by all of our tax dollars including the tax dollars of people who live in small southern towns and happen to believe that homosexuality is an abomination. Those people pay tax dollars that are used to make videos like this, bashing them, their culture, their beliefs, and their region. So this is our government, the United States government, using Americans' tax dollars to bash Americans and Americans' culture. This is the reason why so many people in small southern towns don't recognize the government in Washington, D.C. as being their government. And it's not just southern towns. It's towns all across this country. Lots of people all across this country in small towns and smaller cities in rural areas, they feel like they are living under foreign occupation. They feel like they are a defeated people living under foreign occupation. And it's not surprising. These elites at the CIA aren't even hiding the fact that they're basically giving the middle finger to the people who are paying their salaries because they consider those people to be backwards. They they're consider – they hate those people's culture. They're trash-talking white people. They're trash-talking Southerners. They're trash-talking people who don't like gay marriage. They're, they're trash-talking you know, patriarchal. They're trash-talking men. It's just – it's so overt. And this is – like you mentioned the colleges. These are college courses – now being taught at the CIA, essentially, or the same rhetoric you would hear from a blue-haired feminist studies professor now being spoken by people who work at the CIA. And that uh, that first chick who gave who made the video, she was talking about how she quoted Zora Neale Hurston in her applica- her job. I think it was her job application or her college admission it was application. In college, I think. Yeah. So th- she quoted Zora Neale Hurston's "How It Feels to Be Colored Me." Okay, at that and during that time period, this is the 1920s, 1930s. Colored was the politically correct term of referring to black people. It didn't refer to anyone who was not black, who was not specifically, more, more specifically, African American. That was the specific ethnicity that people understood when they heard the term colored. This girl is not black, but yet she's appropriating black identity and won a black literary hero. As her own, and the reason for this is very simple, which is something we covered. I think it was uh, it was a couple of episodes uh, ago when we did the uh, the white replacement episode. Yep. The, the there's a very non subtle political uh, political goal here, which is to unite all non white people into one political coalition, multicultural coalition, basically. so they can crush white Americans and make white Americans a basically an oppressed minority, and accept minorities that also may still qualify as. 
that are white, like this gay guy who is white, but he is gay. So as, uh, yeah, as long as he's uh, he's uh, non-heteronormative, as long as he d- isn't a part of the majority ethnicity. But I just find it just fascinating. If you look at this woman, it's very obvious. Like she doesn't even look black. Like there are some – obviously there are uh, – there were African slaves in Mexico who integrated into the population. That's why in southern Mexico some of the Mexicans are more darker skinned. This woman isn't even dark skinned. Like she doesn't even look black, but yet she's appropriating a black literary figure in this country and using a term that was used to describe black people to describe her. So it's it's very obvious what the CIA is doing. The CIA is comp- is running full speed ahead on their anti-white, anti-Christian agenda. Their whole goal is to make the college – what we saw in college classrooms back in 2014, 2015, 2016 to make that the norm. And – it's one thing – see, this is the reason why conservatives never really did anything about universities because they looked at it as, well, I'm not sending my student to that university. They don't do things like that at the university that my kid is going to or I'm glad I'm not in college. I'm not paying for that. But what they're not thinking about is the universities train the elites of tomorrow. You don't become an elite and get to run the country and decide and run other people's lives if you don't get a college degree. And even if they're not your kids, they are still kids in this generation who will outnumber your kid who doesn't go to that college. Exactly. Yes, they will. Or even if they don't outnumber your kid, they will rule over your kid. So it's great that your kid got a job as a welder and he's making $90,000 a year. The CIA agents who also make $90,000 a year, they basically literally hold the keys of life and death in their position in foreign countries. They can get our they can get your son who is a welder to be drafted into the military and go have to fight for his country in a war that he doesn't need to be involved in that he doesn't care about because of some screw up they do in a foreign country. They can get other people, other nations to hate our country and launch terror attacks against our country and get your son who is a welder killed because of it. So that's why conservatives should care about what's being taught in universities. And the whole mentality was that it's just it's just a fringe class. It's kind of like I mentioned, you've got a niche class that's being taught and they're showing this stuff, they're bashing conservative culture. And conservatives have always felt that they could opt out. Well, when those institutions take over the CIA, when those institutions take over the DOJ, you can't opt out anymore. They're going to make you care whether you want to care or not. And one perfect example of how our government is being driven by ideology is what they spend our taxpayer dollars on overseas. So one of the reasons why foreigners tend to hate the United States is because of the fact that the CIA and the State Department meddle in their foreign affairs and try to influence their, their elections. There's one particular organization called Freedom House. This is from Freedom House Woke Imperialist by Richard Hanania. What's interesting about Freedom House is that it raised $48 million in 2019. $45 million of that came from the U.S. government. So what exactly is Freedom House? So its current president is Morton Abramowitz. He is a lifelong American diplomat. The chair of the board is Michael Chertoff. Remember who Michael Chertoff was? He was the secretary of Homeland Security under George W. Bush. If you look at the other 12 members of their um, board – Six of them had jobs for the federal government, with at least one appearing to have worked as a government contractor. So you got an organization that's funded almost completely by the American government, staffed by former American officials. How It's not exactly an independent, non-governmental organization. It's kind of like a branch of the U.S. government at that point. It functions like this. The American government uses the work of independent organizations to justify its own policies that you see. It's a, what the CIA and the State Department used to do back during the Cold War 
what the U.S. government did after the end of the Cold War is it just outsourced that dirty work to independent organizations like Freedom House. It had among its early leaders Eleanor Roosevelt and Wendell Wilkie, the Republican who lost to FDR. So you guys was bipartisan from the very start. In the, one of the four Republicans, I think, who lost to FDR. He was the one. He was the nominee in uh, 1940. I mm-hmm. So after it advocated for American entry into World War II, okay, that that's that wasn't necessarily out of the norm. There were lots of Americans who wanted us to get in early. It also supported the Cold War. Okay, that's also not necessarily non-mainstream. In 2003, its chairman was James R. James Woolsey Jr. He was the former head of the CIA. In a few weeks after in a few weeks after 9/11, Paul Wolfowitz and Doug Feith sent Woolsey to the UK to find evidence that Saddam Hussein was behind the attacks. Robert Draper's To Start a War, his book To Start a War, tells us that, quote, when British reporter David Rose of The Guardian called former CIA director Jim Woolsey on October 13th, Woolsey, who had bonded with Paul Wolfowitz over their contempt for Saddam, said that only Iraq was known to have the capability to produce airborne anthrax spores. But Iraq behind U.S. anthrax outbreaks was the headline that was blaring from The Guardian the very next day. In the same newspaper, Woolsey in July 2003 called Iraq, called Iraq a war for freedom. He relied on his status as both chairman of Freedom House and a former head of the CIA to establish his credibility. In 2011, Woolsey had moved on to become the chairman of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So the so how does Freedom House exactly measure democracy? They recently released their annual report on the state of democracy in the world. It gives a number to each country on a scale that goes from zero to 100 and updates the scores on a yearly basis. So in 2020, for example, Ethiopia got a 24, Switzerland is a 96 percent, and North Korea is at a 3. After 20 years of war, the U.S. has managed to get Afghanistan to 27. Hanani also provides an interactive map where you can see how well your country is doing. So the formula they use to calculate each score isn't, isn't always clear, but for instance, 40 percent of the score is determined by how well a country does on political rights, which is kind of vague, 60 percent on civil rights, with subsections under each of the headings that – of course, are kind of left to interpretation depending on your politics. And 2021, the 2021 report tells us that 2020 saw, quote, the 15th consecutive year of decline in global freedom. So obviously this is going to be based on the political views of their staff. So how exact – what are the political views of their staff? In Europe, Freedom House tells us that Hungary has undergone the biggest decline ever measured in nations in its article Nations in Transit. It plummeted through two categorical boundaries to become a transitional hybrid regime last year. Poland is still categorized as a semi-consolidated democracy. So it's interesting that the two European countries that have moved in the most conservative direction over the past 10 years happen to be the two countries that Freedom House ranks as having fallen in their democracy status. And technically, and they even refer to them as being more authoritarian. So if we, if we look at it a little bit closer, it looks like Freedom House classifies as all conservative countries as authoritarian in two different ways. It portrays things that would otherwise be considered normal politics as authoritarian. It also ignores things that are similar or worse when done by non-right-wing governments. It also just directly penalizes countries for conservative policies. So, for instance, it tells us that the Polish government opposes LGBT and gender ideology, which it uses for mobilizing its base. But isn't that kind of what you're supposed to do if you're running for office? You're supposed to mobilize your base. But uh, but according to Freedom House, mobilizing your base is undemocratic if you use LG, if you use opposition to LGBT and gender ideology to mobilize that base. But opposition to you know white people or straight men is totally fine. Of course, of course. And in the United States, they don't they don't give the United they don't take away any points from the United States for doing that for the Democratic Party doing that. It also criticizes the prime minister of Slovenia for uh, raising verbal attacks on journalists to a new level. 
So because the prime minister attacked journalists, then that's hurting democracy in Slovenia. I mean, isn't that what all politicians do? Every politician that has ever existed always attack journalists for criticizing their performance. So it makes a clear connection between how many agendas a government acknowledges and its level of democracy. It never really explains how, how that connection is maintained. It also mentions that the Polish government's opposition to abortion and Slovenia reducing funding for its public broadcaster are hurting democracy in those countries. What's interesting is many conservatives in the United States will criticize the media and would like to ban abortion, cut funding for NPR, and not have schools teach that gender is a social construct. Many Americans believe that stuff. So we're supposed by according to Freedom House, which our government and our we ourselves give forty five million dollars to, if you think that any of that if you believe in any of that stuff, then you're contributing to your country backsliding and democracy. Another thing it criticizes Poland for is the Archbishop of Krakow, who described L- the LGBT as a rainbow plague, and it said that the LGBT agenda bears similarities to communism. Fact check, true. So apparently countries are uh, entire countries are judged based on the wokeness of their clergy. So Poland loses a point in part for that and appears to get another point deducted for some combination of the government's position on birth control, abortion, and gay adoption. But what's really what's really should be concerning to conservatives is the fact that a conservative seem to aggravate Freedom House more than any other people in the entire world. And it's for for obvious reasons. Freedom House is presenting itself as a democracy gauge, and it's gauging other countries around the world based on how well their democracy functions. If the free, if Freedom House is going to set itself up as that kind of arbiter, they kind of need to represent a country that already has all of its ducks in a row because it would be kind of hypocritical for Freedom House to give points to a country for different issues that it's the people in its own country don't support. So if Freedom House is going to criticize another country for not recognizing 100 genders and people in its own country don't do that, it would make other countries say, well, wait a minute, people in your own country don't support this stuff. So a lot, a lot of Republican voters may be thinking, OK, well, I'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative, so I actually support LGBT rights and I want us to rank foreign countries based on that criteria. There's a problem with that, though. As Hanania points out, Freedom House doesn't simply not only are conservatives views on abortion and gay marriage undemocratic, but so are the, their position on organized labor with Freedom House mentioned a Supreme Court ruling that government employees could not be forced against their will to contribute to public sector unions. In 2020, the 2020 report on the United States also mentions Republicans refusing to confirm enough Obama appointed judges in the use of the death penalty. When it's not penalizing countries for being too conservative, Freedom House is applying double standards against those nations. Poland, for example, has tried to make judges appointed through elected officials rather than having the judiciary, in effect, be a closed guild, which it was under communism. These reforms would bring the Polish judiciary in line with the systems that prevail in the U.S. and other Western countries and is arguably more democratic than the alternative. So to be clear... Poland is saying our judges operate as a guild. We want to make it more democratic so people can elect the judges. Well, according to Freedom House, that that kind of behavior is causing it to backslide in its democracy. It's causing it's it, it's hurting its democratic norms, which it just happens to coincide with the position of the European Union. Sweden, for example, is one of only three countries to receive a perfect score of 100. This is despite having hate speech laws, which have in the past been used to arrest Christian preachers for their interpretation of the Bible. Norway, another perfect democracy in 2020, expanded its hate speech laws to cover gender identity with punishments of up to three years in prison for violators. So in Norway, if you don't believe that a man is a man or a woman is a woman, then you could spend up to three years in prison just for saying that. 
and they get a perfect 100 score from uh, from Freedom House. Another double standard is related to whether countries are allies or enemies of the United States. So, for example, Iran has actual elections that determine who gets in power and has legitimate legal consequences for economic and foreign policy, even though many candidates are disqualified from running. Oman, in contrast, is an absolute monarchy with a consultative council, which has no legislative powers and can only recommend changes to new laws. Yet Oman has a score of 23, while Iran has a score of 17. Jordan, another American ally and arguably another absolute monarchy, gets a score of 34. But what's interesting is the United States loses points for things like Trump criticizing the media, Republicans' opposition to abortion and LGBT rights, um, different things, pretty much you know things like opposition to public sector unions. But what the United States does not lose points for are the NSA spying programs, which is arguably one of the most undemocratic functions of our insti- of our government. The prosecution of journalists who have brought them to light, like Julian Assange. On the question, are there free and independent media, the U.S. gets only a three out of four because, quote, Fox News in particular grew unusually close to the Trump administration and, quote, Trump was harshly critical of the mainstream media throughout his presidency, routinely using inflammatory language to accuse them of bias and mendacity. The U.S. gets four to four on the four or four on the question, are individuals free to express their personal views on political or other sensitive topics without fear of surveillance or retribution? Surveillance programs are mentioned, but there are no points deducted. The U.S. also gets a four to four on academic freedom. It's very interesting. Academic freedom and political freedom are the two points that Republicans do not feel like they feel do not feel like they live in a free country over. But according to Freedom House, we have complete political and complete academic freedom in the U.S. So basically what you're telling me is this thing is like a modern woke far left version of the CIA of the 1980s that would go around declaring, oh, these are third world countries that don't have enough freedom. We need to go in there and, you know, covertly make them our satellite states. But we're going to completely ignore all the problems happening in our country at the same time. Right. But also what what's scary about this and a lot of Americans, the reason why conservatives haven't actually most I would I would venture to say most Republicans don't even know what Freedom House is. They don't even know what their tax dollars are being paid are being spent on. But the, one of the reasons for this is because a lot of Americans would hear this and it's like, OK, well, why should I care? I mean, 45 million to drop in the bucket. But it's not just the money. It's not just the fact that Republicans tax dollars are being used to interfere in countries, other countries against people who have the same social values that they do or are Christians like they are. The reason why this is so dangerous is because whether a country is called a democracy or not has implications for American foreign policy. It's generally considered more legitimate to interfere in the domestic politics of non-democracies or even engage in regime change. So if the if Freedom House identifies a country that's undemocratic, the U.S. could find itself at war with that country even though most Americans have nothing against the people in that country. So Russia is a perfect example. Freedom House gives Russia an extreme, incredibly low score. So we've got this organization that's ranking democracies, and Americans have pretty much accepted that it's okay for us to interfere in other countries that are undemocratic and overthrow, overthrow authoritarian regimes. So you could have Americans at war with Russia. Americans don't have anything against Russians, don't care about Russia one way or the other. Another reason is because these is Freedom House defines these conservative positions as undemocratic. If it's okay for the U.S. government to interfere in those countries militarily or even covertly, it's also okay for the U.S. government to interfere in people's lives who happen to be conservative, such as the FBI sending the FBI to bust their door down and throw them in jail. 
uh, such as it stopped them from being able to vote about the public sector unions, there's almost no aspect of American conservatism that's safe from the charge of that it's being undemocratic. Freedom House mentions a widening inequality in wealth. Okay, that's another thing that leftists typically complain about. And that's one of the reasons why it deducts points from the U.S. So that means that conservatives who like tax cuts, that they could be put on the chopping block of Freedom House, that they are contributing to the undemocratic nature of the United States. There, I mean there's literally no standard GOP position that does not get smeared as undemocratic by Freedom House. So to understand why, that we're, why we're funding things like this, to understand what exactly the deep state is, we've got to understand what the deep state believes its role is. Most Americans believe the role of the State Department is to represent America's interest abroad. So obviously we appoint ambassadors, we run embassies overseas, we represent the policy of the administration, which is supposed to represent Amer the American people. The State Department has a little bit different view on what its role is. The State Department and in, as well as the rest of the deep state, they see their role as upholding the liberal international order that was created after World War II. This is one of the misconceptions about the deep state. A lot of people think that they're just in it for the high salaries, for the power, that they're just a bunch of liberals, which they are a bunch of liberals. But there's a specific reason why they fought Trump tooth and nail and even engaged in illegal activity like the IRS leaking his tax returns to the New York Times because the people in these organizations, from the time they went to college in all of the classes they took, they were educated by foreign policy experts foreign policy veterans who were also educated in a specific worldview that the United States had a role that does not match what the common citizens believe the role is for the United States. So Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he, he gives a lot – his Twitter account regularly gives insights to this. On May 7th, he tweeted, we helped build the multilateral system to solve big, complex problems that no country could address alone. We intend to work through the system to stop COVID-19 and tackle the climate crisis, among other priorities, and abide by the core principles of the international order. He also tweeted, we will also continue to push back forcefully when we see countries undermine the international order, pretend the rules we've all agreed to don't exist, or violate them at will. For the system to deliver, all countries must abide by it and put in the work for its success. So think about this. He is using his secretary of state's office. He's using his position as secretary of state to enforce the international order. Not Let's go back to that first tweet. He's talking about how he's going to uh, build a multilateral system to solve big, complex problems, tackle the climate crisis, yada, 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 and abide by the core principles of the international order. So that's a positive thing he's going to do. There's a, there's a little bit of a positive enforcement. There's also negative enforcement. He clarifies, we will also push back forcefully when we see countries undermine the international order. Not we will push back forcefully when we see countries threaten the safety of the United States. Not, not we will push back forcefully when we see other countries threaten the interests of American citizens. It's the international order. And this is something that a lot of Republicans really right now, they feel like we're living in a country with a government that does not represent us. Well, it's because it doesn't. It represents the international order. For foreign policy experts, for people in the who work in government, this isn't weird. This is just the way it's supposed to be. Trump was a deviation. We've now corrected the Trump problem. We've gone back to the system that was set up under Harry Truman. After World War II, President Truman introduced the Truman Doctrine through fairly deceptive methods in order to convince the American people to support intervention, whereas beforehand most Americans weren't interested in intervening in foreign countries unless our 
national security was at risk or unless our interests were directly involved. He used emotional appeals to the nation's sense of moral responsibility and collective ego. He did this first to Congress to get them on board and then to the American people. The wartime alliance between the Soviet Union and the U.S. was fragile, of course, because of the different economic systems. Obviously, Americans, most Americans didn't like communism. All of Russians were forced to dislike capitalism. To the chagrin of both Churchill and his successor, Prime Minister Clement Attlee, Americans didn't quite share their concern, though, with the Soviet Union that they did after World War II. Most Americans were influenced by the pro-Soviet American media, that which back then was still was left-wing, just like today that portrayed the Soviets as our allies who had helped defeat Nazi Germany as, uh, as a country we should continue to trade with and to treat as a friend and uh, you know as, as a partner. Just as an example, according to a Princeton poll that was taken in May 1945, most Americans believed that we should continue to cooperate with the USSR. Two polls, one in August and another one in November of 1945, showed that 70 percent of the American people opposed turning over nuclear weapons to the United Nations. So even though we wanted to cooperate with these two, we didn't want to give up our nuclear weapons. We wanted to hold on to that as to be the world's um, hegemon. Churchill argued against turning over the nuclear – the atomic bomb to the UN, but just because he wanted the English-speaking nations of the world to maintain their hegemony. Churchill viewed things through the Anglosphere. So he saw the defeat of Nazi Germany not as a defeat of Germany because it threatened Britain, but he saw it as a way for the English-speaking peoples of the world to do what the German-speaking peoples of the world would have been able to do if Germany had won. And this is, in fact, one of the reasons why he gave his Iron Curtain speech. This was to convince the American people, specifically American elites, that America and Great Britain should team up against the, against the Soviet Union to maintain in order to protect freedom and democracy throughout the world and more specifically to protect our nation's sovereignty from potential invasion by the Soviets. That speech had its intended effect. A poll taken two weeks after the speech showed that 60 percent of Americans felt that the U.S. was too soft in its policy toward Russia, which was a complete reversal from before the speech. One of the ways in which the U.S. the U.S. government saw that it could potentially influence foreign affairs through force was in Turkey. The Soviet Union was using a former pact it had with Turkey to bully Turkey into sharing the straits in the Black Sea. Well, the U.S. sent a naval cruiser to the area and the Russians backed off. So the Truman administration was like, hey, wait a minute. If we can get the Russians to back off over this little dispute in the Black Sea, we can get them to back off almost anywhere in the world if we use enough military force and enough economic aid. Well, in the meantime, in Greece, there had been a somewhat of a civil war that had broken out because the, the Greek communists were trying to overthrow the government and Britain occupied Greece. Britain, because it was strapped for resources after losing so much money and men during World War II, it was looking to the United States to bail it out. So the British embassy informed the State Department on February 21, 1947, that it would no longer be able to provide financial assistance to the governments of Greece and Turkey. So this would mean that Greece could potentially become communist if they if Britain pulled out because they didn't have many troops. The idea among the Greek capitalists was the Greek government is that as long as you have one British soldier on Greek soil, if we can put that Greek if that we can put that British soldier on the front lines and get them killed, then that'll bring more British soldiers and they'll continue to help us defeat the communists. Well, Britain didn't have the money, so they were telling the U.S. State Department we're going to pull out. Hint, hint, like, hey, can you step in and take over for us because we can't afford it anymore? Well, the United States obviously wouldn't stand for that. The American people were tired of the war. They wanted to buy homes. They wanted to buy cars. They didn't want to continue to fund the military. In fact, they wanted to cut military spending. So the United States continued to ship military supplies to Turkey and Greece and Iran in line with British desires. 
with the implicit understanding that U.S. troops would intervene if any of those countries needed it. Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal had the USS Franklin Roosevelt sent to Athens and on September 30th announced the establishment of a permanent U.S. fleet in the Mediterranean. The U.S. ambassador in Athens, Lincoln McVeigh, pushed for a public declaration against foreign encroachment that threatened Greece's independence and integrity. In other words, the ambassador in Athens, he wanted the U.S. government to make a formal declaration that if the U- if the Greek government was threatened, that we would intervene. Truman then had to convince Congress and the American people, if he was going to continue this charade, that he, we needed to send troops, we needed to send economic aid to Greece and Turkey. So the Truman administration believed that in order to get that kind of aid, you would have to have an ideological shift among Americans. Because the, the thing is, he was facing a Republican Congress that really wanted to go back to the way things were before World, World War II when we focused on the American people. We had more of an America first government. We weren't focused, we weren't concerned on what kind of government they had in Greece. His Undersecretary of State, Dean Acheson, though, viewed the world from a power politics perspective. And he felt that the U.S. should orient its foreign policy from a from a matter of power politics, kind of like they did before World War One, in which all these countries in Europe, these big countries in Europe, were using the Balkans and smaller countries as pawns in their chess game to control the continent. So Truman convened a meeting with members of the Senate House, hoping that he would be able to convince them of the need to offer more substantial financial and military aid to Greece and Turkey. His presentation, though, didn't work. He just, he wasn't that good. He he pitched. He made his pitch, and it didn't work. They just basically were like, "No, we don't. We don't want anything to do with that." In fact, one senator asked why the U.S. should be in the business of pulling British chestnuts out of the fire. The uh, the newly confirmed Secretary of State George Marshall, of course, General George Marshall, he tried. He tried his hand. He tried to convince the uh, the members of the of Congress, and he didn't have any more luck than Truman did. Because remember, at this point, the Republicans had been elected to Congress with the explicit promise that they were going to cut spending. They wanted to cut not only foreign spending but domestic spending. And now you've got Truman and George Marshall coming asking for money to go give to foreign countries. They're like, no, no, we're we're not doing this. Our our constituents would tar and feather us if we did this. So it fell to Dean Acheson to save the day for the administration. He needed to to persuade those present that Greece was of vital strategic importance. So – he under Dean Acheson, who of course was a Democrat serving in a Democratic administration, he understood that the only way to get Republicans to spend any money was to convince them to scare basically, basically to scare them to death of communism. He used their fear and hatred of communism to convince them that this aid needed to go. So he painted the divide between the USSR and the US as a, the divide between Rome and Carthage. He reinforced the already well-known evils of communism. Of course, Republicans were very strongly anti-communist. They're going to perpetrate all of their evils on the Middle East. So all the Middle East is going to fall under their domination. They're basically going to be, become the new Ukraine. And then where are they going to go? Well, then they're going to spread into Africa. Then they're going to spread into Asia Minor. Then they're going to spread into Egypt, to Europe, eventually to Italy and France, because at the time Italy and France had strong communist parties. So he said winning one toss of the dice would be a terrific victory for communism, and only the U.S. was in a position to break up that play. So if the Soviets succeeded in winning Greece and Turkey, U.S. security and freedom itself would be threatened, pointing out the domino effect. Well, after a long silence, Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he said, well, Mr. President, if you'll say that to Congress and the country, I'll support you, and I believe that most of its members will do the same. Acheson assured the interventionist Canadian ambassador after this meeting his name was Hume Wrong, that he said bold action would overcome the isolationist tendencies and the U.S. would execute, would, quote, execute her full responsibilities as the strongest power in the world. He said foreign policy would now change from instead of from bottom to top, it would now change from top to bottom. In other words, 
telling the he's telling the ambassador from here, from, from here going forward, foreign policy will no longer be decided by the people. It will be decided by elites. It'll now move from being this, uh, being decided from bottom to top through elections, by top to bottom um, through experts, which is what we have today. That's the system we have today. The American voter doesn't have any control over foreign policy because even when they elect a Donald Trump who wants to go in and shake things up, Donald Trump can't do anything because the entire foreign policy establishment is run by elites who have been convinced in their university classes and their training that American foreign policy is best done when it's conducted from top to bottom, that the man on the street doesn't know how to run foreign policy and shouldn't be made to care. So Atchison said – I mean get this. He said, that, he said the people would rise like a trout to a fly and pursue a vigorous 100 percent American foreign policy which combat – which would combat on a world scale the spread of communism. He'll, they will rise like a trout to a fly. So the imagery he's using, they're basically fishing American voters. They're alluring American voter, voters who are like fish with a fly, and American voters are going to jump up and latch on to that fly, not realizing there's a hook that's going to keep them hooked for the next half century and who knows how much longer. The problem, though, was even if he, even if Truman convinced Congress of this, Greece and Turkey hadn't requested any aid. So you've got uh, – we've basically got a solution in search of a problem. Atchison wants us to intervene. Truman wants us to intervene in order to stop the spread of communism. But Turkey and Greece ha- – and, Br- and Britain wants us to intervene because these are their spheres of influence. The United States had never historically had any dealings with Greece and Turkey. This was strictly in the British sphere of influence after Britain won World War I. Britain is wanting us to step in and save their empire. But the problem is the Greeks and the Turks, they don't want us to step in and save Britain's empire, and they haven't requested any aid. So the, so the State Department solved this by sending those nations' embassies drafts for their requests that they should make. So both governments were like, hey, yeah, free money. Yeah, we'll go ahead and sign that. We'll sign on the dotted line. So those governments went ahead and made the expected request that our State Department drew up for them to make. With the Greeks emphasizing war damage and humanitarian needs rather than any contest with communism. So our government is wanting to give them aid to stop communism. Greece are like, oh, OK, free money? Yeah, OK, we need, we need money because of war damage and our people are poor. So Atchison told the assistants in his office who are responsible for framing Truman's speech that the president should speak of waging a global struggle between freedom and totalitarianism and emphasize the protection of individual liberty and democracy everywhere in the world. So the reason for this is because he needs to appeal to Americans' ego if they're going to support something like this. He said, if FDR were alive, I think I know what he'd do. He would make a statement of global policy but confine his request for money right now to Greece and Turkey. It was to be understood that helping Greece and Turkey was not mere vague do-goodism but was vital to protecting Americans' way of life. It was agreed upon not to mention the Soviet Union in the speech so you wouldn't anger the Soviets. Truman had met with a few leaders of specifically Republicans, and he had convinced them. But now he needed to convince the entire Congress. In his message to Congress, he warned that, quote, confusion and disorder might spread throughout the entire Middle East. He said no democratic country, including the United States, could be safe in a world dominated by dictatorships, not communism, dictatorships. Remember, because he doesn't want to anger the Soviet Union. He doesn't want to offend Joseph Stalin. He framed the aid as an investment to ensure that the investment of World War II would not be in vain and concluded that the national interest demanded that the policy of the U.S. should be to protect free peoples around the world in the resistance of attempted subjugation by armed minority factions or outside forces. This is kind of like the argument that the Asheville City Council made to white Asheville residents that 
they needed to pass reparations because by giving free money to black people in Asheville, it would raise the standard of living for all Asheville residents because it would give black residents more purchasing power. It's just a really convoluted way. So Truman is going to try to convince Americans that we need to tax you more and spend more of your money because by stopping communism from spreading to Greece, it will stop communism from spreading to America and one day stop America from being overrun by the Soviets. This promised commitment became known as the Truman Doctrine and marked the first time that the United States became involved with the internal affairs of any European nation during peacetime. At no point had America ever intervened in any country outside of the Western Hemisphere during peacetime. The belief among the administration was that Stalin was funding the Greek guerrillas and we needed to intervene to stop this outside intervention. And it was kind of drawn from George Kennan's long telegram that the way to stop Soviet advancement was anywhere, anytime that the Soviet Union tried to intervene in a foreign country, we would basically tell the Soviet Union, okay, well, where, where you are now, you can keep. So you can keep Poland, Romania, all these Eastern European countries, but no further. So we've already divided the world between capitalist countries and communist countries. We have our sphere of influence. You have, our, you have your sphere of influence. The countries that are non-aligned, they remain non-aligned. So you can't encroach any further. The argument by that, at least from national, a national security standpoint, would be, okay, the Soviets are funding Greece. We need to step in and stop that from happening because they're breaking the unwritten agreement that you can't continue to expand. The problem, though, was Stalin wasn't actually funding Greece. Greece money was going in from Tito in Yugoslavia, who was trying to spread his influence. But the thing is, even if Stalin was not funding Greece, Truman had covered all his bases because in the speech, the armed minorities plank of the Truman Doctrine took care of that nicely. So even if it was a domestic insurgency, if Congress passed this bill and America bought into the Truman Doctrine, the U.S. would still have a license to intervene because it was a global war against spreading dictatorships, not a global war against communism. The New York Times loved Truman's speech. They celebrated it as the, quote, end of the epic of isolation. They said, we're now entering the epic of American responsibility. Time and Newsweek also praised the president's pledge to defend freedom throughout the world. Remember, the right opposed Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations. The right opposed Woodrow Wilson's vision for using American military as the arsenal of democracy. But despite the administration's intense public relations campaign with its allies in the media, this doctrine faced extremely fierce criticism from both the left and the right. So the administration had to defend itself against both sides. And what it did is it would use the left's arguments against the right to convince the right. It would use the right's arguments against the left to convince the left. So, for instance, on the left, the nation and the new republic joined the progressive party presidential candidate Henry Wallace and criticizing the president for a policy that could lead to war with the Soviet Union. On the right, Walter Lippmann supported assistance measures to Greece, but thought that it should have gone through the UN rather than be direct aid. For reference, at this point, most conservatives supported the United Nations because most, most of the right hadn't yet turned against the UN. In a poll, 56% of Americans uh, agreed with Walter Lippmann. They believed that we should give limited aid to Greece. They believed that it should have gone through the UN. But only 25% supported unilateral intervention in Greece. So in order to get its passage, because it wasn't just a matter of convincing these these leaders in the Republican Party like um, like Arthur Vandenberg. You also had to convince the American people because in this time period, Americans still read newspapers. 
So the American public was much more informed about what was going on in their own nation and around the world than they are today. So in order to achieve passage for a major bill like this, the administration had to convince American voters. Atchison tried to create a, an emotional link between the small Mediterranean nation of ancient Greece and 21st and 20th century Americans. The problem, though, is Greece was ruled by a corrupt monarchy, and so a lot of senators, they didn't want to give money to a corrupt country just because of you know ancient Greece and just because of Aristotle and Plato. But this wasn't necessarily infertile ground. you got to remember at this time, Americans were a lot more in tune with the classics than they are today. And I'm talking about like the man and woman on the street, like workers, elder workers, farmers. They knew they had read Plato and Aristotle. It wasn't just the elites who had read that stuff. So Americans still viewed, and even in, in cinema, uh, Hollywood made movies that uh, praised ancient Rome and ancient Greece. This was a time in which the classics and you know those classic civilizations were still revered by the vast majority of Americans. So by just basically by saying Greece – by painting the picture that the barbaric Soviet Union was about to overrun democratic Greece and destroy a democracy in Greece that had lasted for thousands of years, which of course wasn't true. But the in American consciousness, Greece was this country that had been a, de a democratic country for thousands of years, and it was about to be overthrown by the barbaric communist Soviets. By employing that tactic, it was much easier to get Americans on board with this aid package. This got a little bit of pushback. Republican Congressman Francis Case, who actually supported the bill, he wanted to help out Greece. He was seeing where the Democrats were going with this. He understood where the Wilson, where the uh, not the Wilson, it might as well have been the Wilson administration. He saw where the Truman administration was taking this. And he wrote the president warning that no country is wise or rich enough to run the rest of the world. George Kennan, who wrote the Kennan Telegram, who was basically the father of the Cold War, he was outraged at this. That they were basically using his arguments for containment to push a policy that would tie the United States uh, – basically tie Americans' hands in the future based on this doctrine because if the United States intervened in Greece to stop in a domestic insurgency in the name of stopping totalitarianism – it would have to do that in every other little country in the world because every other country in the world would say, well, you did it. You helped out Greece. What about us? And it would it would embolden the Wilsonians in the country to basically take over the foreign policy establishment, which is what they did. It's what we see today. It's why it's basically why we have somebody like Anthony Blinken as our secretary of state. So um, so Kennan, he believed that the U.S. should take a tough stand against the Soviets. And he, he actually favored economic aid to Greece, just like Republican Congressman Case. But in a speech to the National War College in Washington, he called the president's speech, quote, grandiose and bulging with commitments that the nation could not and should not honor. He wasn't comfortable applying universalist rhetoric to a particular situation with clearly defined goals in order to win over the simple and the ideologues. He, he did believe that it was the government's responsibility to educate the masses, many of whom suffered from a lack of mental development. But there was a difference between education and exaggerated distortion, and he felt that the Truman speech to Congress had crossed that line. He just didn't believe that it was possible to, quote, describe in a few pages a program designed to achieve U.S. objectives with respect to the USSR. Now, the failure of the policy's opponents to produce a solid, consistent, and eloquent opposition was one of the main reasons why the Truman Doctrine went forward and this aid bill got passed. Robert Taft was the leading Republican at the time, and he was, of course, very strongly against intervention. A name that's basically synonymous with conservatism in American history. Correct. Back when conservatism was truly America first, before we went down the path, basically before the Truman Doctrine completely took over American foreign policy. But Taft's opposition to this aid bill and his opposition to the Truman Doctrine more broadly 
was just basically an extension of his economic fiscal conservatism. He didn't really have – he had a clearly defined foreign policy, but he wasn't the most articulate senator. And also another thing is he didn't employ the sleazy tactics that the Truman administration employed by going to America's elites in journalism and in academia and pitching this as something that they should support. And so, um, so you know, Taft, he saw politics as a direct relationship between the politician and the voter. He didn't see it as a uh, trifecta relationship uh, between the politician, the journalist, and the voter like Truman and Acheson did. So the most radical aspect of this Truman doctrine was the fact that it didn't limit the possibility of U.S. intervention to instances of communist aggression. So this posed the possibility that the U.S. could and would intervene militarily in another country, even if that meant moving in against the will of that country's people or the government or to put down an external an external or internal development that Washington perceived to threaten that particular country. This would end up stretching America's foreign policy beyond the bounds of containment of the Soviet Union and put the U.S. government – not the U.N. in the place of judge, jury, and executioner of tyrants all around the world, which is what led to the Iraq War. It means that the, it also meant that American taxpayers would now bear the brunt of this crusade while their sons, brothers, and fathers would die for it. Now, in hindsight, it's very clear that the doctrine's authors, like Acheson, did not intend for this to be a foreign policy doctrine, but a political means to gain a, an immediate end. That immediate end was support for the Greeks and the Turks, specifically Greece, to make sure that they wouldn't fall to communism. Uh, but Truman and Acheson correctly understood that in order to sell a product to a skeptical buyer, who, who was the American public, a salesman must appeal to ego, fear, and passions. And that's exactly what they did. They appealed to ego by basically beefing up Americans' ego and reminding them how they saved the world for democracy in World War One and World War Two. They appealed to their fear by saying that if Greece falls to communism, the Middle East will fall to communism, then Africa will fall to communism, Western Europe will fall to communism, then you'll be faced with a communist world, and the United States will be the only free country left standing. We won't have any allies, and eventually the entire world will gang up on us and invade the United States and make the U.S. communist. They appealed to their passions by – um, reminded them that this is ancient Greece. You know, this is this is the birthplace of democracy. We wouldn't even the United States would not be a democracy if it wasn't for ancient Greece. And now the barbaric Soviet Union is about to destroy the world's oldest democracy. If they can destroy that, they can uh, they can destroy democracy. Period. The Wilsonian ideology, this interventionist ideology that that guided the New York Times, that guided. Time Magazine and Newsweek to support the Truman Doctrine. It has a complete authoritarian grip on American foreign policy, which is why they can give unlimited funds to organizations like Freedom House that openly despise middle America, that openly despise the inheritors of the doctrine of Robert Taft, of the inheritors of the original America First movement before World War II. They have complete cultural and institutional hegemony. So – Moving forward, if the if the Republican Party actually wants to accomplish anything, they've got to understand that the vast majority of the Republican voters are not going to go along with a Wilsonian foreign policy like a George W. Bush foreign policy. If you're going to push back against this, it needs to capture government and take it over the same way that Truman did. Truman managed to convince the American people that we needed to pursue a foreign policy. Trump managed to convince the American people that we needed to pursue a foreign policy. But rather than force the deep state or force the bureaucracy to follow his will like the Truman administration would ultimately do, Trump allowed the deep state to push back and 
undermine his administration. So you've got to become the social welfare party to make sure that you um, you maintain your grip on the working class vote. You also need to make sure that you capture government rather than shrink it. And the Republican Party needs to use the government to its ideological ends rather than hold the line until the next Democrat gets elected. It also needs to focus on civil liberties and human rights at home and not care about human rights and civil liberties in country with which we cooperate and trade. In other words, what goes on in Western China with the Uyghurs, that's of no concern to us whenever our own government is treating us like a pariah, whenever our own government is making videos, promotional videos about the CIA that's slamming certain regions of the country, that's slamming certain parts of the country, certain beliefs that most Amer- that many Americans have. I would, I would argue that most Americans have. So if we want to have a country that has institutions that the people trust and don't feel like are, foreign, are part of a foreign occupation, the only avenue out of this is for the Republican Party to completely embrace the non-intervention of the Robert Taft era. Because as it stands now, after the Truman Doctrine took over and became the de facto American foreign policy, this is what every politician, Republican and Democrat, would tout. We would they would tout how we support human rights abroad. We want to we want to project our power in order to spread democracy. This is what has been going on with every single administration since Truman. Yeah, the Republican Party needs to call back to its roots on non-interventionism, on fair trade. But now that we realize how dire the circumstances are with these freaks now infiltrating the CIA and running the CIA and getting ready to use that institutional power against us. Republicans need to get with the program and realize these are tactics that have worked for the left for decades. They've worked for the imperialist, neoconservative foreign policy order of over the last half century. We need to start doing the same thing when we are in power, if we are going to survive as a movement and as a country. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Tune in next time for episode 21, and we'll talk to you next week, guys.